0: I want to bring in Greg Hahn. He is the president and the chief investment officer for Winthrop Capital Management. They are based in Indianapolis, but he joins us here in studio. Greg, thank you very much for being here. Let's go right to the idea of leverage loans. And what does the leverage loan market tell you right now?
2: Right now, the leverage loan market is probably the biggest source of fear in the bond market. We are on the front end potentially of a change in the credit cycle. And we expect that to uh, express, express itself through the leveraged loan market, traditionally it would go through the the banking sector, but a lot of that's been pushed into the market now.
1: So, what does that mean?
2: So, um, products like uh, business development corporations and commercial or uh, uh, CLOs um, collateralized loan obligations are, are at though they have a different risk profile. They use that as their collateral, and it, if it starts to deteriorate, we'll see deterioration in those products.
1: But I meant uh, if this is sort of the epicenter of the next problem in credit markets. How does that unfold? What does that look like?
2: It starts with restructuring of the underlying loans. So the small business that does a loan, it's a highly levered loan, uh, can't make its its interest payment because of rising interest rates, or a covenant breach. And so it needs to restructure that loan. Uh, if that happens 10 times inside of one of these pooled products, then that, that that's a source of deterioration. And that impacts the, uh, the the products ability to pass cash flow onto its investor. Having said that, are current investors getting paid for the risks they are taking? So I would say, given the increase in volatility that we're experiencing right now, yes. However, if you look at 2018 with the low spread volatility and the low volatility of the equity market leading up to the fourth quarter... Then that was really that was really the the question: Is are really compensated for the risk? And then I would say no. It's only when we see increased volatility and in these price adjustments as re, the, really the price of risk readjusting itself in the marketplace right now. Uh, now we look at it and say, yeah, we're we're, we're compensated.
1: All right, Greg, I, I want to widen out a little bit because you just recently put out uh, your outlook for next year, and let's just start with the first line. There's no other way to say it. The financial position of the United States is a disaster. So what does that mean? I mean, are we headed toward an imminent uh, recession or deterioration? Is it gonna happen in the first quarter of 2019, the fourth quarter? What's What's your forecast here?
2: No, so we are not forecasting a recession. We're forecasting an economic slowdown in the second half of 2019. But that, that first sentence was really encapsulated a bigger thesis we have that our form of democracy and our form of capitalism are evolving. That's not a political statement, it's just for us to really understand how do you, how do you invest in today's market relative to 20, 30 years ago? We have to look at it and say, wait a minute, this, this, this democracy is evolving? And look what's going on over in Europe with, with Italy, Britain, France, Germany, all of these governments are going through some form of chaos ours is just we've we've spent a lot of money since the financial crisis to get this economy moving at a time when we're we're growing but we're running huge budget deficits that all turns into debt all right so if that turns into debt does it ever have to be repaid that is a great question i i i honestly don't think it does I think I'm waiting for Wall Street to come up with the, uh, the, uh, the vision for how we turn all of this into one great big zero coupon bond on the Fed's balance sheet. And, and it, it never becomes a problem then.
1: Well, so Greg, what does this mean in terms of how you position your investments? What have, what's been the biggest change you've made uh, recently to your actual investing portfolio?
2: So we've made a couple changes. The, um, the, we've, been, we've been moving this whole period of time has been the up in quality trade in the bond portfolios and um so now we're seeing we're actually seeing just more opportunity. opportunities spreads widen a lot of this lease is technical we expect there was heavy supply coming into december we expect that to slow down but with the increase in spread volatility the decline in interest rates it, it spreads widened
1: when you say up in quality does that mean investment grade over high yield does it mean a over triple b yeah. i mean what, what are you talking about
2: most of the market now is triple b but it really means that we're moving up towards the higher end of triple b into single a we like the banking sector here's the paradox The yield curve inverts, right? So everyone thinks that banks uh, should lose money. But remember, this is post-Glass-Steagall. Banks have a lot more levers and a lot more drivers to revenue than they did when all they did was make loans and and, and collect deposits. So in a world where it's post-Glass-Steagall, we think this actually is a period of time for uh, banking upgrades given the increased capital positions. And having looked at what's happened to bank stocks in the last week, they're all hit new 52-week lows. Have you been buying? Uh, we've been, Well, we've been in the market buying. Uh, the bank stock, the position, and we're, we're neutral on bank stocks right now, um, but we're, we're finding other opportunities. I, I liken it to Kids in a Candy Store and Saturday morning cartoons.
1: That sounds pretty good. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us, Kids in a Candy Store. Perhaps yes. uh, for you, uh, Kids in a Guitar Store, but we won't go there. Greg Hahn <laughs> is President and Chief Investment Officer of Winthrop Capital Management, based in Indianapolis, but joining us here in our 1130 studios in New York. stay in the sort of Circle around perhaps the top executive of the United States uh, that is now landing in the court system, with Russia in particular in focus. Let's talk about alleged Russian operative Maria Butina, who uh, was not initially cooperating with federal prosecutors, but now is pleading guilty. So let's start with who is Maria Butina and why is her guilty plea important? Joining us is Richard Kahn, managing partner at. Eurasia Advisors in New York, uh, which focuses on Russia and and banking in Russia. He has a ton of experience working in Russia with Russian uh, businesses. Richard, so let's start there about Maria Putina.
3: Well, in terms of who she, she is, she has been identified as basically a, a Russian agent who did not disclose herself as such. And uh, she apparently, uh, I and mean, we'll learn more about it, uh, was being utilized uh, by Russia to uh, both influence the NRA and its positions and uh, possibly uh, act as a resource to you know uh, direct funding to different political uh, groups, uh, perhaps through the NRA. So she is a, um, um, a really a treasure trove for our security forces in the United States to try to figure out how, Russia operates in this area, the subtlety of their activities with different uh, organizations, the NRA being the one that's now been identified, but there may be others. And uh, uh, so she's a very significant uh, resource for us.
0: What do you believe uh, the Russian leadership is thinking or feeling based on this news?
3: Well, based on that particular news, I'm sure they're pretty unhappy. Uh, they, uh, They don't want their spycraft to be revealed. I I also think they do not uh, wish people in the United States to wake up to the level of subtle interference in our politics and in our institutions that takes place by utilizing already existing and embedded organizations to uh, uh, both influence by argument and also through money our political process. Uh, in other words, I think what this is going to lead to is people recognizing that this huge scandal we're living through, this nightmare, is not just about Trump and people around him. It uh, potentially has far broader implications.
1: So Maria Butina is set to plead guilty to conspiring to act as an agent of the Kremlin. Aside from the NRA, who, who has not yet been named may get kind of wrapped up in this as more information trickles out.
3: Given what I've seen in terms of how Russia operates in other locations, including within its own country, uh, I would be surprised if we are not uh, in the U.S. already investigating uh, cash flow going through um, religious uh, institutions. I think that uh, is a classic device used by Russia. Uh, Religious organizations um, have various special protections in the United States, very difficult to... Attack them to uh, get information about them. These types of charitable organizations and foundations are a prime resource for uh, for Russian intelligence and other areas, and it's an it's a very difficult area to uh, uh, to fight against because one can always make the argument: Look, you know, we we share the the perspectives of Russia on particular social issues, and so all we're doing is we're advancing our own. Agenda. So finding the line between uh, basically becoming a, a, an agent of some sort of Russia in terms of advancing its agenda and only advancing, if you will, the, uh, the value system of a particular organization is, is not an easy one to find. That's, again, why the subtlety is so effective. Um, and I do think we're going to find uh, in the long term that, uh, that money has flown through that way.
0: Do you believe that this is going to complicate the already complicated and fraught relationship between the United States and Russia or has the relationship already gone to a point where you know nothing can make it even worse
3: well you know with the with the bombers landing in venezuela obviously things can always get worse tell people about this this
0: is about uh, <laughs> aircraft a, Soviet, a russian aircraft that have been transferred to venezuela that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons
3: sure this has echoes obviously of the cuban missile crisis when russia placed Nuclear, uh, what was trying to place nuclear weaponry uh, very close to us in the Caribbean. This is further away. Venezuela is a lot further away than Cuba. On the other hand, they now have jets that can travel twice the speed of sound, uh, and so it, it's never a comfortable thing to have uh, bombers that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons in such proximity. So, yeah, this is Russia's way of, one, signaling some uh, disappointment in, in Trump's view that he wants to withdraw from the INF. It's also more directly a, an analogy to the situation in Ukraine, where, um, from the Russian perspective, we're interfering in their backyard, and we've been supplying weaponry there, and Russians are saying, well, fine, you know, we, we can once again come into the, the Caribbean and let you know how it feels.
1: I'm I'm wondering— just in light of the rising tensions and the rising awareness of Russia's influence in U.S. elections, what does that mean from your perspective for the 2020 elections? Does that mean that we're actually going to be more protected because people are going to be more aware of these influences? Well,
3: quite honestly, I I am concerned about it. I think uh, there are various levels to it. Uh, I, I do think people are hopefully going to be more aware that the information that they're receiving uh, may have been influenced by a a non-us party
1: what type of information just give us a sense
3: well for example if they see advertising taking place or or messaging on facebook or any other social media platforms uh, these organizations meaning the social media platforms are stepping up and trying to do more to protect us from that or at least identify the sources but i think people are more savvy now uh, about the risk of that. So in that, in that one area, I'm a bit more hopeful. Uh, I do worry that we need to uh, uh, be much more aggressive in hardening our defensive capabilities at the, uh, in the counting of votes, the registering of votes. Uh, Russians are, it should never be underestimated in their capabilities when it comes to uh, essentially cyber crime, if, if they want to do that. Uh, now, obviously, most of defense is trying to get people not to want to attack you, But uh, we are in a mode now where uh, uh, I do view that as an ongoing risk, and our state systems, many of them are antiquated. And I'm not confident that the current administration uh, has a particular incentive to do all it can uh, to harden those assets. give you about 20 seconds. Current
0: business practice, as you know it, is it hardened to the point where it can defend itself and repel attacks from state-sponsored cyber attacks?
3: When, I, when I've seen no, I think it's an ongoing battle. We see cyber attacks constantly, both from state actors and perhaps even more uh, you know, frighteningly from non-state actors. Uh, certainly one thing the Russians are concerned about and want to talk to us about is safeguarding, for example, nuclear codes and stockpiles, worrying about the non-state actors. Uh, at least when we're dealing with China and Russia, we, we have responsible people we can talk to. Thank you very much for being one of them. Much appreciated. Richard
0: Kahn is managing partner for Eurasia Advisors.
1: There is a growing kind of groundswell of complaint that there was a real estate law passed at the end of last year that is basically uh, giving kickbacks to some key political figures. Joining us now is Caleb Melby, financial investigations reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, We are talking about these opportunity zones. Can you just start by telling us what those are, when it was passed and why?
4: Sure. Yeah. Uh, They were part of uh, President Trump's uh, November 2017 tax bill. And basically how they work is is uh, uh, governors get to choose 25% of uh, their ostensibly poor census tracts um, uh, uh, to uh, get a suite of very generous tax benefits. And uh, specifically, if you sell an asset and you invest the capital gains into one of these zones, um, you get to defer your capital gains. If you hold it for at least seven years, you get up to a 15% permanent discount on those capital gains. And most importantly, if you hold the new asset for at least a decade, you pay no capital gains on that when you sell. So it's a really good deal for people who can make this work. Um, but as uh, we and others have been drilling into uh, what places have been selected, some of these zones look less poor than others. And of course, there's a lot of people around the president himself uh, who uh, seem to be, let's just say, early movers to take advantage of these designations.
0: Well, yeah, that that's where the next question I have is, what about the ethical consideration about who gets to participate in these zones and their relationship with the lawmakers or the president that had something to do with all this.
4: Yeah, well, that's exactly it. So, so two people that uh, that stick out are uh, Kushner Companies, um, owned by the family of uh, presidential son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner, um, and then another early mover is uh, Anthony Scaramucci, uh, whose Skybridge Capital is looking to take advantage of this as well.
1: When you say early mover, what do you mean exactly? So,
4: yeah. Uh, it- Right now, Treasury is still finalizing rules for opportunity zones. And a lot of investors are really scared to make investments based solely on what they perceive to be the tax benefits right now. But to take full advantage of the tax benefits, you also need to make your moves before December of 2019. So the fact that people, by and large, haven't been investing yet and are still waiting for those rules to come down, but people who are closer to the administration are making these moves early while rules are still being finalized is causing concern for some people.
0: Caleb, is there any understanding as to why the rules have to be so? complicated. (laughs) It it does seem to
4: harken back to a a certain type of policymaking made popular in the 1990s and and moving into the early 2000s, where uh, you have these broad societal problems under investment in poor communities. Um, But uh, rather than trying to create um, some sort of government programs to grapple with this, we're basically going to try and incentivize uh, participants in the market to solve these problems for us.
1: Just to push back a little bit, has this idea been floated before President Trump came to office? In other words, was this something that was a popular cause on a bipartisan level earlier? Uh,
4: Well, certainly uh, it's seen previous iterations. The the most uh, recent example to the opportunity zone would be enterprise zones that existed beforehand. And yes, uh, the language that went into the tax bill did have uh, bipartisan support. So uh, um, it was actually um, one person who worked really hard to pitch it um, uh, was sean parker uh, the facebook investor Um, and he worked closely with tim scott the republican senator from south carolina Um, but then another backer was uh
0: cory booker the democratic senator from new jersey and is it worth noting that anytime you have a tax advantaged investment in this case having to do with opportunity zones and real estate that ultimately the U.S. taxpayer ends up subsidizing this in the form of lost tax revenue. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's exactly it. And um, in terms
4: of talking about alleviating poverty, spurring investment, um, uh, I, I can tell you we've been talking to a lot of developers, a lot of investors, a lot of lawyers. The, the idea of alleviating poverty is, uh, it, I, I mean... It's In commendable. most it, people it, it, want to do that. It, yeah, they, they they want to do it, but it's, it's not what they're 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 devoting their energy to. Right, it's not to. what <laughs> they professionally do. But, yeah,
1: but Caleb, I mean, just to be clear here. Yeah. the the issue is the first mover aspect. The key is can inside executives or officials, repre- elected officials, representatives, use information that they have. Uh, that other people do not have to make investments that will inevitably be lucrative. Well,
4: and again, we should be clear. So so Jared Kushner's uh, lawyers and representatives say he's had nothing to do with the family business since taking office. Anthony Scaramucci famously was only part of the administration for 10 days. He's somebody who uh, um, surrounds the White House but is not Part of it, um, so so the idea that we there's no sense that there's actual like insider information as anybody who would listen to this show popularly understands it. Just just so much as a familiarity and a confidence around the tax advantages uh, with with this aspect of the tax law.
0: Thanks very much for being with us. Always a pleasure. And thanks for explaining all this. Caleb Melby is uh, our financial investigations reporter for Bloomberg News. You can follow him on Twitter, as we all do, at Caleb Melby, M-E-L-B-Y. I want to bring in Greg Hahn. He is the president and the chief investment officer for Winthrop Capital Management. They are based in Indianapolis, but he joins us here in studio. Greg, thank you very much for being here. Let's go right to the idea of leverage loans. And what does the leverage loan market tell you right now?
2: Right now, the leverage loan market is probably the biggest source of fear in the bond market. We are on the front end potentially of a change in the credit cycle, and we expect that to uh, express, express itself. Through the leveraged loan market, traditionally it would go through the the banking sector, but a lot of that's been pushed into the market now.
1: So, what does that mean?
2: So, um, products like uh, business development corporations and commercial or uh, uh, CLOs, um, collateralized loan obligations, are, are at though they have a different risk profile. They use that as their collateral, and it, if it starts to deteriorate, we'll see deterioration in those products.
1: But I meant uh, if this is sort of the epicenter of the next problem in credit markets. How does that unfold? What does that look like?
2: It starts with restructuring of the underlying loans. So the small business that does a loan, it's a highly levered loan, uh, can't make its its interest payment because of rising interest rates, or a covenant breach. And so it needs to restructure that loan. Uh, if that happens 10 times inside of one of these pooled products, then that that's, that's a source of deterioration. And that impacts the, uh, the the products ability to pass cash flow onto its investor. Having said that, are current investors getting paid for the risks they are taking? So I would say, given the increase in volatility that we're experiencing right now, yes. However, if you look at 2018 with the low spread volatility and the low volatility of the equity market leading up to the fourth quarter, then that was really that was really the the question: Is are really compensated for the risk? And then I would say no. It's only when we see increased volatility and in these price adjustments as re, the, really the price of risk readjusting itself in the marketplace right now. Uh, now we look at it and say, yeah, we're 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 compensated.
1: All right, Greg, I, I want to widen out a little bit because you just recently put out uh, your outlook for next year, and let's just start with the first line. There's no other way to say it. The financial position of the United States is a disaster. So what does that mean? I mean, are we headed toward an imminent uh, recession or deterioration? Is it gonna happen in the first quarter of 2019, the fourth quarter? What's What's your forecast here?
2: No, so we are not forecasting a recession. We're forecasting an economic slowdown in the second half of 2019. But that, that first sentence was really encapsulated a bigger thesis we have that our form of democracy and our form of capitalism are evolving. That's not a political statement, it's just for us to really understand how do you, how do you invest in today's market relative to 20, 30 years ago? We have to look at it and say, wait a minute, this, this, this democracy is evolving? And look what's going on over in Europe with, with Italy, Britain, France, Germany, all of these governments are going through some form of chaos ours is just we've we've spent a lot of money since the financial crisis to get this economy moving at a time when we're we're growing but we're running huge budget deficits that all turns into debt all right so if that turns into debt does it ever have to be repaid that is a great question i i i honestly don't think it does I think I'm waiting for Wall Street to come up with the, uh, the, uh, the vision for how we turn all of this into one great big zero coupon bond on the Fed's balance sheet. And, and it, it never becomes a problem then.
1: Well, so Greg, what does this mean in terms of how you position your investments? What have, what's been the biggest change you've made uh, recently to your actual investing portfolio?
2: So we've made a couple changes. The, um, the, we've, been, we've been moving this whole period of time has been the up in quality trade in the bond portfolios. And um, so now we're seeing, we're actually seeing just more opportunity. It spreads widen. A lot of this lease is technical. We expect there was heavy supply coming into December. We expect that to slow down. But with the increase in spread volatility, the decline in interest rates, it, it spreads widened.
1: When you say up in quality, does that mean investment grade over high yield? Does it mean A over triple B? Yeah. I mean, what what are you talking about?
2: Most of the market now is triple B, but it really means that we're moving up towards the higher end of triple B into single A. We like the banking sector. Here's the paradox. The yield curve inverts, right? So everyone thinks that banks uh, should lose money. But remember, this is post-Glass-Steagall. Banks have a lot more levers and a lot more drivers to revenue than they did when all they did was make loans and and collect deposits. So in a world where it's post-Glass-Steagall, we think this actually is a period of time for uh, banking upgrades given the increased capital positions. And having looked at what's happened to bank stocks in the last week, they're all hit new 52-week lows. Have you been buying? Uh, we've been, Well, we've been in the market buying. Uh, the bank stock, the position, and we're, we're neutral on bank stocks right now, um, but we're, we're finding other opportunities. I, I, I liken it to Kids in a Candy Store and Saturday morning cartoons.
1: That sounds pretty good. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us, Kids in a Candy Store, perhaps yes. uh, for you, uh, Kids in a Guitar Store, but we won't go there. Greg Hahn <laughs> is President and Chief Investment Officer of Winthrop Capital Management based in Indianapolis, but joining us here in our 1130 studios in New York.